This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their roles, what those roles entail, and the books they love. I apologize for my abrupt break in podcast episodes beginning September 1st, but my mom unexpectedly passed away. I appreciate everyone who checked in with me. It really cheered me up during a very sad time. For the next two weeks, I will be catching up and posting a bunch of episodes, so the schedule may be a little less structured than normal. Thanks for hanging in with me. Today, I am interviewing Jill Paul about The Collector's Daughter. Jill is the best-selling author of 10 historical novels, many of them describing real women she thinks have been marginalized or misjudged by historians. Her latest novel, The Collector's Daughter, is about Lady Evelyn Herbert, a remarkable woman who was part of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. Jill lives in London with her partner, who is a light artist, and loves wild swimming year-round. I thoroughly enjoyed The Collector's Daughter, and it is one of my September Buzz Reads picks. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Welcome, Jill. How are you today? Oh, wonderful. It's so nice to talk to you again, Cindy. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've really been looking forward to this because I loved our conversation last year. And the second I got the galley of The Collector's Daughter, I read it and I loved it. So I'm thrilled to pieces that we're able to speak again. Oh, brilliant. I'm so glad you liked it. Thank you. It was so good in such an interesting time period. And obviously a popular time period, but not one I've read a lot about in historical fiction in recent times. So that was really fun. Yes, it seems to be very much dominated by the Second World War at the moment. I just feel there are so many great writers writing in that area. I haven't dipped my toe in there at all. I love the 1920s. You know, society was changing so much, both here and in the States. You know, with the people coming back from the war, the men still really shell-shocked not enough men to go around all the available women. And then, you know, everything changing in society, the hemlines coming up, women didn't need chaperones anymore. Women were even drinking and smoking. It's just almost overnight, all these changes happened in society. So it's always been a period that's fascinated me and I I wanted to write about it. Well, and then throw in King Tut's tomb, which is a thing that has always fascinated me, And I'm thinking, okay, this is the absolute perfect book. So, well, before we start really diving into my questions, why don't you just tell me a little bit about The Collector's Daughter? It's the story of Lady Evelyn Herbert, in fact. Now, the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb in November 1922 was always portrayed as a double act between Howard Carter, the archaeologist, and Lord Carnarvon, who was the sponsor, sponsoring the dig. But when you look at photographs outside the tomb in November 1922, there's a short, dark-haired woman standing there as well. And that's Lady Evelyn Herbert, Lord Carnarvon's daughter. And she was there with them. And she was the first person to crawl inside the tomb in the middle of the night. And I thought, who is this woman? (laughs) What made her so brave? She'd had a very sheltered upbringing at Highclere Castle, which is where Downton Abbey is set. 
And um, I crawled around. There isn't a biography of Eve herself, but I crawled around different books and gathered what information I could about her. After going inside the tomb, she wrote to her uncle that it had been the greatest moment of her life. But probably most of your listeners will know that shortly after that, her father tragically died from this bizarre infected mosquito bite. And the newspapers started writing that there had been a curse on the tomb. And I wanted to just look at the whole of her life, actually, from the 1970s when the Tutankhamun exhibition started touring around the world, looking back to the 1920s when all these events were happening to her, and just look at how the discovery of the tomb had shaped her life and made her what she was. Can you imagine being that person that's there when it opened? It's extraordinary. I mean, we've got the transcripts. Howard Carter wrote a lot of notes. We know what he said. That's all written down. And that he was peering in through a tiny little hole at first. And they were jumping up and down saying, what can you see? What can you see? He said, wonderful things. <laughs> ah, classic understatement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you just brought that to life so well. I really felt like I was there. And then from the perspective of Eve, you know, he says, would you like to go in? She's this tiny little woman so she can fit through the space. And, you know, can you think there's been, you know, you're, you're out there in Egypt, there's all these tombs and you're wondering, you know, should I go in? Should I not? Is there some kind of danger? You talk about the smell, you know, it's musty because it's been closed up for so long. I just felt first that you really brought it to life. And second, you kind of put us in Eve's head as she's trying to decide, should I do this or should I not? And then after she does, of course, it's probably the coolest thing that's ever happened to her. I mean, how do you top that? I guess you don't really. Yeah. But at the same time, in the other part of her life, you know, her mother didn't encourage her interest in archaeology at all. Her mother wanted her to be this perfectly brought up young lady who made a, a glittering marriage with somebody. I think she said nobody of lower rank than a Viscount and certainly no second sons. It's got to be the eldest son because they inherit. So her mother's frantically trying to push her into the arms of all these aristocratic suitors. And Eve was really happy just scratching around in the desert with a trowel and looking for, looking for artifacts. So she had this very, you know, she was pulled in different directions by her father and her mother very much so. She was a fascinating character for me and very popular. This is the one thing that I, I read from all the accounts. Everybody really liked her no matter where she went, you know, whether it was in Parliament in later life, in, at the races, because she loved racing her own racehorses. She was just the life and soul of the party, I think. Well, and that probably explains a little bit her comfort level with heading right into that hole and seeing what was there, because she was just one of those people that was just going to kind of embrace whatever came her way. Yeah, I think so. I think, which is incredible when you when you think about what a sheltered upbringing she, she led. I mean, she didn't go to school. She had just had a couple of tutors that came in to teach her at Highclere Castle. And she went out on her horses. And they had one other family home, Bretby Park, and one in London. In fact, just last week, I wandered around looking for the London places that were associated with the family and taking photographs. And it's only her first marital home that's still there in the condition that it would have been in in 1923 when she got married. It's a really pretty house. But her father's big house is, is turned into an office block and her mother's house has been knocked down. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite fun. I love that part of research, just going around to see the, the places. Well, I have a bunch of questions about the research, but before we even dive into that, I would love to know where you got the inspiration for the story, how you learned about Eve, and then how you decided to write about her. My process at the moment, I'm lucky enough to have 
William Morrow as my American publisher. And I have a lovely editor there, Lucia Macro, who, when it's time for me to, I've delivered the last manuscript and I'm deciding what to write next, I come up with a a list of, it tends to be about five ideas and I'll just write a paragraph about each and fling it over to her and um, say, which do you want? (laughs) And through the year, whenever ideas come to me, I've got a big master file. I've also got lots of bits of paper cluttering my desk because <laughs> and um, notebooks, and I try and bring them all together and I'll just choose which five I feel would be right. And then I'll let Lucia have the final say, usually, about what which one's going to be next. But, you know, my UK publishers get a say as well. And uh, yeah, so and then I'll, I'll launch off. I'll just buy, I mean, I just start with loads of books. I'll just scour the internet or bookshops and libraries and gather in whatever I can. And I try to do this in the summer months so that I can just go and sit under a tree somewhere and read books and call it work. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm researching in the summer and then come the fall, I'll start planning the book and I write very long outlines, usually about 35, 40,000 words, about half of the length of the novel themselves. I'm just free writing, really letting the story come to me without stopping to think about the absolute perfect word or description or checking facts even. I'm just kind of letting the story all come out. And once I've finished that outline, I'll show that to my agent, um, my editors, and then assuming, hoping that they like it, I'll go back to page one, line one, and I'll write the actual book, choosing nice words the next time and not just, you know, stuff off the top of my head. So that's that's kind of my process in the last few books. And it was working quite well until um, The Collector's Daughter. I actually had to try out seven different beginnings before I got the one that I was comfortable with. I'd, um, I started wanting to just tell Eve's life chronologically because that was the idea in my head about this woman's life from childhood to the end of her life that's shaped by this major event when she was 20, 21, she was 20 when she went inside the tomb. But of course, with a chronological telling a life story chronologically, you haven't got that dramatic narrative push. You haven't got the questions, you know, that the reader needs to keep turning the page to find out what happened next. So I felt it was really lacking pace that way. So I went back and I put in a more pacey beginning and then a different one. And I tried seven altogether until I came up with the one that's there now. Sometimes, you know, and it's my 10th novel, Cindy, and sometimes, you know, I think, gosh, you'd think I'd know how to do this by now, but I hope I got there in the end. You definitely got there in the end. Thank you. And I'm sure every novel is different. And that was actually one of my questions for you was the format, how you decided to go back and forth between the 70s and the 20s. And then also it's almost a flashback to the 20s a fair amount of time. Yeah, it just sort of came that way. As as I said to you, there was a photograph of Eve outside the tomb in 1922 that was one of the inspirations for the novel. And there's another photograph of her in 1972 at the British Museum exhibition. And she's standing in in front of a glass case that the the gold, magnificent gold funeral mask is is in. And um, I just thought, gosh, your life has been shaped by this over 50 years. And and so I suppose that's where it came from, that um, I wanted to talk about the 70s and how huge Tutankhamun became again then when they started sending out the touring exhibitions and millions went to them. In fact, I think it was in the States 
in New York from 67 to 69, perhaps an 8 million people came along, which was huge for that era. Absolutely huge. And every time it comes, there's this, it was called Tootmania in the day in the 1920s. And it sort of comes back again. There's lots of merchandise. And I think there's a Batman script with um, a Tutankhamun mummy coming to life in it. So yeah, it affects all kinds of media as well. It was actually in London at the beginning of last year, beginning of 2020, and I saw it at the Saatchi Gallery there. And that was a really good exhibition. It had a lot of a lot of items in it. And it's just I'd see I'd already seen it at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. And of course, they're all moving at the end of this year, I think, into a big new grand museum at Giza, out just outside Cairo, where they're going to bring everything back together again. 5,400 objects from the tomb. So yeah, it should be magnificent. I hope I can get out to see that soon. There's nothing, there's no sub- substitute really for seeing the artistry up close. You know, the real technical skill that these workmen had over, it's almost three and a half thousand years ago. It was 1323 BC. So, um, and, and beautiful jewels and work with gold and, and very lifelike, you know, the very careful way that they made the eyes lifelike on the funeral masks made with calcite and rimmed with black and um, this, this strange beard coming off the bottom of his chin. It's just magnificent to see the real thing. I think so too, because it stuck with me from, I think I've seen the exhibit a couple of different times. Mm-hmm. And definitely the things have stayed with me in terms of seeing them in person versus just reading about them. That's fascinating that it's all going to be pulled together in Giza at the end of this year. How wonderful is that? Yeah. Well, the wonderful thing is that Egypt managed to hang on to them. And this is a big story about, you know, the colonies of European nations, you know, especially Britain and France, who went overseas and took over the running of countries like India and Egypt for a time. Their archaeologists went in and just took possession of whatever they dug up from the ground there. And um, of course, in Egypt, that had been happening. Napoleon's troops had discovered the Valley of the Kings in 1797, 1798. And they made off with the Rosetta Stone and various other bits and pieces and took them back to France. And the Rosetta Stone is now in the British Museum, along with lots of other Egyptian antiquities. And of course, in the modern day, you just think, well, that's theft. Hang on. You know, there are laws against this. You know, there's laws against benefiting from the proceeds of crime. (laughs) Anyway, that's my point of view. I know this is a very thorny issue, but it just seems, but there was a real turning point in 1922. In February that year, Egypt gained independence from its British protectorate status. Not full independence because Britain still wanted to keep control of the Suez Canal because that was the shipping route to India that they used. So they left lots of British officials in place. But on paper, Egypt was independent nine months before Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered. Whereas Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon and the British press proclaimed the discovery of the tomb as this great British triumph. There was lots of celebration about it back home. In fact, the Egyptians, newly independent, claimed it as theirs and they wrote wonderful poetry about it. And so you've got these two sides. And the first skirmish in the battle between the the two sides came in January, two months later, when Lord Carnarvon rather foolishly gave the Times in London, the Times newspaper, exclusive coverage of the story. And that upset not just the other newspaper pr- proprietors and journalists in London and America and wherever else, it really upset the Egyptians who were 
being banned from covering a story happening on their own soil. You know, the clash intensified until in 1924, Howard Carter was banned from the tomb for a year. And um, when he went back, the Egyptians made it very clear that none of the artefacts were going back to Britain, that they were hanging on to it. And it was a real turning point in colonial politics that this ex-colony turned around to the British and said, no, you can't take our stuff. So there's lots of Egyptian artefacts and the Rosetta Stone in particular still in the British Museum, but Egypt kept all of the Tutankhamun stuff. And, and that just seems absolutely right to me. I agree completely that it seems absolutely right. If it is found in a country, it should belong to that country. There's, yeah. you know, To me, that's pretty cut and dry. So certain threads for me appear as I'm reading different books. And so one of the things that I have recently discussed with a variety of authors is putting an event in context. So I obviously was familiar with King Tut and the tomb and the discovery, but I wasn't aware until I read your book that Egypt had gotten, even on paper, independence earlier that very same year. And that probably completely changed the way things were handled with the tomb. Now, of course, Howard Carter did take some things out of the tomb. And I think that is an issue that remained for many years, correct? That we were trying to get some of those things back. Yeah. But the fact that Egypt was able to hold on to most of them because of the timing of their independence. Yeah. You know, you think, what if that had happened like the year before that they had discovered the tomb one year prior? It's kind of interesting to think about, but I was glad that you placed that in context for me. Oh, no, it definitely was part of, you know, the whole ethos of the era. And uh, yeah, I always try to do that. Well, you can't, when you're writing historical fiction, you can't come in with your modern head and say, well, this was completely wrong. And, uh, you know, Lady Eve would have believed that they deserved to take some of these artifacts home, I'm sure, you know, because that's the way she'd been brought up. Her father had a collection at Highclere Castle already. There still is a collection there, but, you know, they're very careful to state it was all bought and paid for properly and they've got the papers to show it. So, yeah, it's down in the basement. It's a, it's a lovely house, by the way, if you're ever over, over in that direction. That is definitely on my list of things to tour. When we're all able to travel abroad like that again, I definitely want to visit it. Yeah. It's smaller than I thought it would be from um, watching down Downton Abbey. But they've got that absolutely magnificent central arcade that goes up several floors, to, you know, with family crests on the walls and ancestor portraits. It's, it's quite special. That's funny, the perspective of TV versus real life. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The rooms aren't as big as you think they are when you see them with Maggie Smith or whoever. whoever. Well, and is everything filmed in the house from Downton Abbey as well or just the outside? Oh, no. Inside the house, too. They, okay. they do film in there. I'm sure they have lots of sets as well. Because that could mess with the perspective of the size of the rooms too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what surprised you the most about writing this book? Oh, um, <laughs> I suppose I'd always thought of seances and um, the belief in you know, spiritualism as being a late Victorian thing. I mean, it was huge in the late Victorian era in Britain. But of course, when Families lost so many loved ones in the First World War and um, the Spanish flu epidemic that followed it. There was a real resurgence of spiritualism. I mean, some of it was just fun at parties, playing around with Ouija boards or lifting tables or whatever. But people were really taking it seriously. And somebody with the gravitas of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the Sherlock Holmes writer, was uh, talking about spiritualism in the press and, and being quite serious about it. So I have 
a character. I have Eve, in fact, go to the Society for Psychical Research, which still exists in London in Kensington to this day. And I just that's something else that I wanted to try and get across, that the curse story felt very, very real to people when the newspapers started talking about the curse in the tomb. A rumour that was started, by the way, by Arthur Vigel of the Daily Mail, after Lord Carnarvon gave exclusive rights to cover the story to the Times, all the other papers were trying to think of ways to get their own Tutankhamun stories on the front page. And this Daily Mail journalist said, oh no, but there's a curse in the tomb. And um, that gave them loads and loads of <laughs> material to write about. But in fact, there had been curse and, you know, mummies curse stories going back to the middle of the previous century with Louisa M. Alcott and lots of other writers writing about Egyptian tombs and mummies coming back to life. So, I mean, it seems kind of incredible nowadays, but I think people really did believe in it in the early to mid-1920s. And every time somebody died that had visited the tomb, it was like shock horror, you know, headlines. And the other thing, of course, was that in that era, you know, stories could spread much more rapidly with new advances in technology of telegrams and grams and print and radio as well. So news got around the world much faster, and it really was a huge story in the day. It had the impact worldwide almost that the moon landing did, you know, in 1969. It was massive. People, everybody was talking about Tutankhamun in those months immediately after the tomb was opened. It was really huge. So yeah, I think I was surprised. Going back to your question, I get there eventually. I think I was really surprised at quite how seriously people were taking the curse story in the 1920s. Well, and I think the curse story is one of those stories that obviously has an interesting beginning, but then you can sort of feed the narrative with whatever happens, you know? So there were some odd deaths, but as you say at the end of your book, so many people were there and through the tomb. And if you probably look at the death rate per population, it's probably not any greater. It just happened that that, that story sort of stuck. Yes, indeed. And, you know, the two people who went, you know, of the three people that went in first, okay, Eve's father died young, but she lasted till 1980, which is um, 58 years later. And Howard Carter lasted till 1939. So they didn't do too badly. Right. Because Howard Carter was older too. I mean, how old was he when he passed away? Oh, there you go. He was 27 years older than Eve. So he must have been in his 60s anyway. Yeah. So it wasn't like he died super young. But I think, you know, a curse story like that is so exciting. And obviously the press will feed into that and everybody loves to read that kind of stuff. Mm. So we haven't talked about your research yet, and I would love to, because I know you traveled to Egypt. We've talked a little bit about High Clare, but I'd love to hear about your trip to Egypt. Well, I, I mean, I've written about Tutankhamun for the British press before I even decided to write this novel. It's long been an interest of mine. And I went there in 2011, in fact, a long time ago, with a friend, and we cruised down the Nile with a really wonderful guide called Amir, who um, just explained to us a little bit about I used to know all this. I probably can't remember much now, but just about how to read hieroglyphics, what the different symbols mean. He really brought it to life. So that was wonderful. And we went to Luxor. I've been in the Valley of the Kings. Like You have to queue up for hours to get inside Tutankhamun's tomb and there's nothing there. It's just the empty tomb because all the artifacts were now in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. But it was just worth it for the atmosphere and, and the place and looking out at the same view apart from the cues, <laughs> um, looking out at the same view that the Egyptians did way back, you know, in centuries BC. And then we went down the Nile to Aswan and um, saw the big dam that was built, the high dam, the crocodiles floating in Lake Nasser. 
Abu Simbel, and then we flew up to Cairo and had to look around there as well. So I had been to all the Egyptian locations that I had Eve and her father going to, and that was that was useful, really useful. I mean, the colours of the Egypt are maybe one of the strongest images that you take away because they're so magnificent. The Nile is this, it really is a sapphire blue. It's not a kind of muddy blue. It's a very strong, positive, deep blue. But there's the mud on the edge of it is black. And then round about on either side, you've got this strip of green, mostly date palms and some irrigated fields. And then immediately beyond, it's just golden desert. So blue, green and gold, I just always think of as the colours of Egypt and all, you know, incredibly bright. And also that heat, until you've really felt that intense heat, it's very hard to describe it. It's like it's pressing down on you, pushing you down into the earth. You have to be, you have to go out early in the morning and late in the afternoon and rest somewhere with air conditioning at midday. (laughs) That's my advice. It's very, very beautiful. Well, as I listen to you, Jill, and as I'm sure all of the other listeners who will hear this podcast are listening, they're going to say, this is why she's a writer, because you just bring it so vividly to life, which is what I like so much about your book. I just felt like I was transported to Egypt. And as I was sitting here listening to you now, I felt like that again. You have a gift. Oh, thank you, Cindy. I mean, I do love travel as well. So it's great when you can combine these things. (laughs) Well, that's like probably in my top three places that I want to visit. By the end of my life, I want to get to Egypt. So I would just, when we can get past this pandemic, you're making me think I need to bump it up the list. Hmm. It definitely is one of the best places I've been to, the most, you know, fascinating. And I, I just find it so incredibly impressive what this ancient culture was doing long before any other cultures in the world had this technology, they'd sort of leapt ahead and done magnificent things. Well, and when you were describing being in Tutankhamun's tomb, I think that to me, just being able to be in there and know how old it is and how long ago it was built, there's just something about that. Like when we visited Shakespeare's home, you know, you're standing in the same place Shakespeare stood. And I think it's the same idea, you know, even if you have to queue for a long time and there's nothing in there but the actual tomb the sacred spot, but also just the history that's there. There's just like Anne Frank's home, just some of those places that you've heard about for so long and to actually be where they were. You can't trade that for anything. I know. And you could actually be breathing some molecules that they might have breathed, you know? Exactly. Standing exactly where they stood. Well, I guess in King Tut's situation, but a tiny bit different because he would have been laying down. But but in the other places, you know, to be right where they were at some point. No, I agree with you about Anne Frank's house. That was incredible, wasn't it? I just remember both in Anne Frank's home and in Shakespeare's thinking the history here and the things that happened, you just, it's just amazing. I love visiting writers' homes wherever I go and looking at the places that they sat and wrote. Jane Austen's is lovely as well. Dylan Thomas has this wonderful boathouse in Larne in the south of Wales. And it's just, it's like a shed, but with a glass window looking out over the estuary there. And um, they've left it exactly as it was in his day with crumpled up paper on the floor and an empty bottle. And <laughs> he used to go and get drunk before he wrote. So, <laughs> oh, Well, I would love to see that. And I've been to Bath and seen the, what's the Jane Austen Museum now. And I think she lived there for a short amount of time, but I need to go to her other homes at some point. No, no, it's wonderful. Well, I always love to hear what you're working on next. So can you talk a little bit about what's up next for you? So the next novel, which I've delivered, in fact, um, which is coming out August 2022, is set in New York in the 1920s, which is an era I'd always wanted to write about, you know, 
prohibition about women there. They keep changing the title at the moment. <laughs> they've, they've given up my title, which was my title was the Bootleggers Benevolent Bridge Club. But I kind of always knew that wasn't going to be adopted. It's a bit of a mouthful. But it's about four real women who were living in New York, forging careers, who had a bridge club. So that's August next year. Oh, that sounds fantastic. That's one of my favorite eras, kind of jazz age New York City. There's nothing better than that to read about, I think. Well, as in England, well, it's, it's different from England, but yet again, you know, everything was changing for women. And in New York, these women I'm writing about are managing to have careers and they're managing some of them to have husbands as well as careers and even sex lives before marriage. And, you know, everything's changing so fast and the rules just don't exist anymore. It was fascinating to research that one. I wish I could have had another trip to New York to, to wander around all these places. You never know. Maybe, maybe later this year I'll manage it. Just I quite often do my research trips after I've written the first draft so that I'll just be checking up little details, you know, checking the route or having a look at the building where my characters wrote. I don't always do it beforehand because it's the story that comes first for me, not the setting so much. But at the same time, I want to get the details right. So after I've written first draft, I'll, then I'll do more of the setting research and make sure I've, I haven't made any huge errors. <laughs> well, that's an interesting way to do it too, because some things may come to you as you're writing that you have questions about that you wouldn't have thought about ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. I know that works that way as well. I always have a huge team of experts behind my books as well. I collect experts in all sorts of different areas. So for this one, obviously, I had an Egyptologist. I had somebody who worked with stroke patients in the 1970s. I had somebody who knew about horse racing. <laughs> you know, So I pull them in. Every book has their different little team of experts that will check sections for me and tell me if I'm making any huge mistakes. Oh, yeah, I had somebody that was good on vintage cars as well, because that's another thing about Eve that I love about her. She was right from the age of 18. She could drive which was really unusual for women of that era as well. And, and I admire and respect her for that. She must have had so much spunk. I think so. I do think so. Yeah. Well, what I think is really interesting about both this book and your upcoming book is that not only are they following the war, but they're following a pandemic. And I think timing-wise for you, that will really have even more readers curious to read your books because as we come out of this pandemic eventually, I think it'll be so curious to see what happens. And I think obviously the Roaring Twenties were a reaction to both the Spanish flu and the war. But I think we're going to see similar types of, you know, everybody just so thankful and happy and celebratory. And so I'm curious to see what our 20s are going to be like. Well, it's it's happening already. I mean, over here in Britain, our, our great and esteemed prime minister declared last week was Monday last week was Freedom Day. <laughs> okay, freedom. Fine. <laughs> but I think I think we're still a bit more cautious than that here. Most people are. But, you know, now you can go into nightclubs with several hundred other people crammed up close, no masks. I find that quite scary still. Well, yes, and I'm not ready for that yet. But I think when we truly get to the other side, I think people are going to just be like, hallelujah. And things that they took for granted before, they're not going to anymore. And so I think it's just going to be a really celebratory time. But I, I agree with you. I'm not quite there yet. But eventually. And so I'm just curious to see what the decade will bring. And I think people are interested in looking back at the 1920s to see what that decade did and how everybody responded to what had happened in the 19-teens. Yes. Well, of course, the centenary of the discovery of the tomb is next year. So I imagine there will be some 
events planned around that, as well as the big opening of, of the museum in Giza in Egypt. I, I imagine there will be some events here too. It was something that I was always aware of from childhood, like you, and uh, very interested in. So I'm looking forward to it. Maybe I need to plan my trip to Egypt next year. I need to tell my husband to get him on board with that. He'll be like, yeah, no. Really? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Oh, do you know what? A Nile cruise is a really good way to do it because you just um, sit on your boat and you get taken from one place to the next. And it's very easy and relaxing. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. I'll sell it that way. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. So many books. Where shall I start? There's a book that's just out in the States by Louise Fine, an English author called People Like Us, about a Jewish boy and a girl who's the daughter of a Nazi official in Germany in the 1930s. And it's doing really well. I noticed it was hitting the bestseller lists. I've just read a proof of Louise's next book, and it's called The Hidden Child. It's coming out in September this year in the UK. And so I imagine it'll be available in the States as well. And I had to, you know, the minute it came in, I just had to read it straight away because the premise is it's about a man in the 1920s who's a proponent of eugenics and who thinks that we should be breeding out any abnormalities, he calls it, from the human race. And, um, you know, of course, the Nazis believed in this. And it was a very popular theory at the time. He advises governments and medical people and um thinks that certain people should be, women should be sterilized because if they have abnormalities in the family line. And then his three-year-old daughter has an epileptic fit and epilepsy is one of the diseases he believes that we should be breeding out. So what do you do when you have this philosophical belief and it comes into your own family? So it's about him and his epileptic daughter and his wife, who's sort of torn between wanting to support her husband and wanting to protect her child. And I just absolutely loved it. Really, really loved it. Another book I've read recently is, now I hope I'm going to say her name right. It's Rona Jaff or Jaffe, I'm not sure. The Best of Everything. And this is an old novel, but it's set in 1952 in New York about a group of women finding their way, four young women trying to find love, trying to make careers. And it was similar, you know, I was doing that in the 1920s and I just wanted to see how she'd managed it. And it's a fantastic book. I really, really recommend it. What else have I read recently? Well, of course, Hazel Gaynor and Heather Webb, Three Words for Goodbye, which is a lovely tour. Two sisters in 1937, their mother asks them to go to Europe on a mission to pick up some clues that will illustrate her past. And they go to Venice. I'm trying to remember all the locations. And they end up flying back on the Hindenburg. Yeah, that was that's a real escapist, lovely read. So I do recommend that you rush out and buy that one. I'm so excited for that one. It is up next for me. Good. Well, Jill, I always love chatting with you and I can't thank you enough for coming again on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Oh my goodness, anytime. It's been lovely. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. 
We hope you'll come and listen. And as always, happy happy reading. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.